Thank you, Chris. Well, we continue in our series today on the culture wars, and uh, today's topic is your children and their education. And I'm going to tackle this topic today, speaking from the perspective uh, from the field that I know most, and that is from a university, from a uh, collegiate perspective. And so that's where I'm going to address this issue today, speak from. Um, in 2015, the Barna Research Group conducted a study of graduating seniors from college, and the, the pool of uh, folks that they were surveying was limited to e people who identify themselves as evangelical Christians on their way in to the university. Uh, what they discovered was that out of the survey pool, that seven out of ten students who identify themselves as evangelicals going into college said that they had lost their faith by the time they hit their junior year of college. Seven out of ten. That's a pretty heavy number. Uh, in, uh, also, the Barna Research Group did a study of faculty at public universities, which showed that um, out of 60% of the faculty at public universities identified themselves as very progressive. That is very much in the left uh, wing, left liberal wing of things, and the way they think and approach things. 30% of faculty identified themselves on public universities as moderate, and less than 10% of faculty at public universities identified themselves as conservative. Dr. Richard Rorty, he's a noted professor of philosophy at Princeton University, said, uh, made a comment about the re-education efforts of the faculty at Princeton University, specifically himself and uh, others of his colleagues, and he said, and I quote, Parents, we are going to discredit you. This is at Princeton University. We are going to discredit you in the eyes of your children. We will strip you or strip your fundamentalist religious community of its dignity. We will make your religious views seem silly rather than desirable. End of quote. Sounds like a really wonderful place to send your child off to school, right? At Princeton or at places that are militant toward Christianity like that. Not to mention the fact that on many university campuses, not all, but many, there is a, a, a push for sexual experimentation. There's a push for experimental with drugs. There's an underage drinking, which has become very prevalent on many of our public university campuses. And uh, you say, well, Gordon, you know what? You seem to be painting all this picture of public universities this morning with a very broad brush stroke. Well, yes, I am. I'm not suggesting that all public universities are bad or that all things that go on in public universities are bad. We know that that's not the case. Uh, but yet, these statistics do speak for themselves. 60% of faculty at all public universities identify themselves as very progressive, 30% as moderate, and less than 10 as conservative. And these are the people who are educating our young people for the next generation. Seven out of 10 students walk away from the faith by the time they hit their junior year of college. That was 2015. That was not some old study, very recent. The statistics speak for themselves. What I'd like to talk to you about today is how the system in our public university system has become so secularized. What has driven that? What has allowed that to happen? In other words, what is different about the educational philosophy that's present in our public university system today, the philosophical education philosophy, than perhaps what was there a generation or two ago, okay? Our scripture is going to come from Leviticus chapter 18. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 5. I'm going to ask if you would, as we do each week, to stand for the reading of God's word. 
Leviticus chapter 18, reading verses 1 through 5. We've got the Israelites out in the desert. They're about ready to head into uh, the land of Canaan. And uh, God has some instructions for them through Moses. Here's what he says, Leviticus chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the man who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. All right, you may be seated. Thank you very much. We're going to come back to those verses here in just a little bit. But first of all, I want to give you a little bit of background about the public education system, about the university system specifically in America. Almost all universities that were founded across this country were founded for the purpose of uh, proliferating Christian virtues and Christian values across our country. For example, Dartmouth University was founded specifically as an, uh, to train up missionaries who would go evangelize the Native American Indians. Their motto is, and I don't know the, the Latin of it, but the, the translation is um, uh, one, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. The University of Pennsylvania was founded by George Whitfield, the great evangelist of the Second Great Awakening. Um, and their uh, motto is laws without morals are useless. Columbia University was founded uh, as to proliferate Christian values and Christian uh, morals, um, and their motto comes from Psalm chapter 36 and verse 9, in thy light, referring to God, in his light shall we see light. Northwestern University, their motto is whatsoever things are true, coming from Philippians chapter 4, think on these things. Emory University, Indiana University, Ohio University, all conceived as places of Christian learning. The University of California, their motto is, let there be light. Again, drawing that phrase straight out of Scripture. Judeo-Christian values were alive and well on our public university campuses all across this country at their inception and in the years after they had begun. And this model that the universities used for educating students Uh, or the model that they used, was what was referred to amongst educators as the classical model. I wanted to give you, again, just a little bit of background here, just a little understanding of what the classical model of what was used years ago, what that was. The aim of the classical model was the pursuit of truth. That is why the public university systems uh, existed. We want to pursue truth, discover what that truth is, and then unite. That's why they're called universities, right? Unite together under that truth or in agreement with what that truth is. And the way that they accomplished this under the classical model was to set all points of view on the table, to consider everybody's perspective, to hear all the arguments, and then as a group, as a class, to then weigh those out and begin uh, eliminating some over others in order to arrive at, to unite at, to university, right, around what the truth is. This is the Greek model of education. It is what is referred to amongst educators as the classical model. What we have today on college campuses has become a shutdown of all opposing viewpoints. Uh, That is particularly of anyone who would oppose a leftist view or a leftist value way of thinking. The tactics that are used, the stratagems that are being used today on our university campuses to silence opposition are through trigger warnings, through microaggressions, 
and through what campuses are calling as safe spaces. Trigger warnings, let me give you an explanation of what that is, are when professors say to their students, now, hey, look, I'm about ready to talk about something that may be upsetting for some of you, like the topic of marriage, like the topic of STD uh, proliferation among casual sexual uh, people. And so because of that, students can be dismissed from class if they believe that whatever the topic that's about ready to be discussed is going to be upsetting to them. And this policy is, is prevalent on many public university campuses today. What that means is, from an education standpoint, is that the students don't have to hear opposing views. That's a departure from the classical model of education. Uh, what that means is students get to stick their thumb in their mouth and sit in their safe space and stay close to anyone who disagrees with me. Another stratagem that public universities have put employed is to preach tolerance. I was talking with a parent just this past weekend. He went to the University of Georgia with his daughter for the December orientation. He was a freshman, and he sat through 45 minutes, he said, of script of one LGBT, whatever that is, a person after another, uh, and a sorority girl, and somebody from, uh, from South Georgia, a Baptist church, or whatever it was, and they were all reading off these scripts about how we are a tolerant community, that that's the kind of a community that you're coming and you're going to be a part of. So that's preaching a, a value system, right? The, the value system of tolerance to the students. Tolerance is just a way of saying that I don't have to listen to what you think, but you have to accept me for who I am and what I believe. In other words, we're not going to have a debate over issues. We're not going to consider opposing views. Um, I'm rather just going to stick my fingers in my ears and say, la, 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 I can't hear you. Um, until you go away or until you finally just accept me for who I am. There is no free exchange of ideas there. And when two opposing viewpoints, get this, when two opposing viewpoints stop having a debate, I mean stop talking altogether, but stop entering into a debate together, when two opposing viewpoints do that, there's nothing left to do but to go to war. And that's what's happened is that we've gone to war because there's no, longer a, there's no longer a debate that's taking place between opposing viewpoints to then arrive at, bubble up to the surface, and say, hey, you know what? One of these is true, and one of these is not. And so rather than consider the merits of opposing viewpoints, which is what a, a classical education philosophy does, we're rather just starting with our presuppositions, we're starting with our viewpoints, and then not allowing those ever to engage a different a point of view, and then uh, people are just tribalized or polarized as a result. You say, well, Gordon, I hadn't declared war on the left. No, but Dr. Richard Rorty has declared war on you. Um, there's a lot more to all that than everything I just shared there, but just in a nutshell, uh, that's what's going on um, in the, under the old, that's the old system, and then that's the new system that we're now operating under. I think it bears to say that these tactics that I just described are what we might refer to as fascist tactics. Fascism is when a government, like Nazi Germany, like Mussolini's Italy, when the government oppresses or silences all dissident voices. If you agree, rather than, or if you disagree, rather than debate you and rather than emerge on the other side unified in truth, because our desire is the pursuit of truth, right? Because that's the whole aim of this education is to pursue truth, to arrive at truth. Rather than that, we're just going to eliminate your voice. 
We're going to silence you. We're going to burn your books. We don't want to hear your opinion. We're not interested in it. What they want, uh, what the left wants, is unquestioned or unchallenged power. That is their clear goal. And so conformity is what is being pushed on our college campuses. That is a totalitarian form of government. And the ideologues on the left, these are the tactics that they are employing. They are fascist tactics. I'll talk more about how the courts are being used uh, to eradicate uh, uh, religious freedoms in our country coming up in a couple of weeks. But uh, for today, just know that that's really what we're up against. We're up against these fascist ideologies um, and methods. The public university system, friends, on the whole, and there are exceptions, has signaled that it no longer invites a free exchange of ideas, at least when it comes to the values of the left. Everybody take a breath, okay? But we need to know. Let's not be imprudent and unwise and stick our head in the sand and act like this is not the way things are. The statistics are there. 60% of faculty at public universities identify themselves as very progressive, 30% as moderate, less than 10% are standing up in front of their students, at least from a values perspective, and communicating what we communicate here week in and week out. Now let me turn to address the issue of the snowflakes. You know why we call them the snowflakes, right? When they hit something, they melt. That's what happens to the snowflake. And so we got this snowflake culture out there in the millennial generation. And so I want to talk a little bit about why those snowflakes are the way they are, why they are melting uh, when they run into any sort of disagreement or any sort of opposition. Why are college students these days having so much trouble with hearing different points of view? I mean, they say practice tolerance. We're a community of tolerance, right? Uh, it's near and dear to our heart, but yet any time an opposing view is presented, uh, I mean, why can't they just hear Christian values in a civil discourse and then just walk away from it and not be completely have their lives totally disrupted. Well, here's why snowflakes have so much trouble hearing different points of view. The millennial generation, friends, is the first generation in American history that has no Christian memory. That is, they didn't grow up in church. They didn't learn Judeo-Christian values. They didn't learn the Bible. They didn't learn how the Bible views humanity. They're the first generation in the history of America that has no Christian memory. There are those that do, right? But on the whole, the population as a whole, the majority of the whole uh, population, they have no Christian memory. Now, because of that reality, because they have no Christian memory, this has left a gigantic hole in their worldview. That is how they understand the world in which they live. And key to that is that they have a they have a very different uh, presupposition about mankind himself. That is, their view about the essential nature of man, the essential nature of man is different than the biblical view of the essential nature of man. First, let me give you what the Bible has to say about the essential nature of man. Uh, there's a fancy word that we use in theological doctrinal circles, and it's the words total depravity. That's how the Bible views humanity. That's the way the, when the Bible looks out at you and me, the Bible says there's a person that is totally depraved. Let me explain what that means. To be totally depraved, uh, the essential nature of man, the Bible says that we are fallen 
creatures, that we are sin-filled creatures. That's how the Bible views us when we come into this world, that we don't come into the world on neutral, but rather that we come into the world with a bent. We come into the world with a corrupted heart that naturally leads us into doing wrong things. That's how the Bible views humanity. You say, Gordon, I, don't, I mean, how can you prove that? Well, have you ever had a two-year-old? Right? You say, where? I mean, there's a little angel, right? Where did this come from? It's called a sin nature. It is innate. It is part of us. It is in our DNA. Paul writes, and all of that sin nature came from Adam and the first sin in the garden. Paul writes, Romans chapter 5, verse 19, through the disobedience of the one man, that is Adam, the many, humanity, were made sinners. Snowflakes don't look at themselves this way. They have not self-actualized yet that they are fallen creatures. They don't believe themselves to be impure or unholy or as having anything wrong. With the way that I've been born and the way that I've come into this world, what are you talking about? That there's something innately wrong with me. Rather, what I see is that I am innately good. And so this has trickled its way into the church. And anytime you hear somebody stand up in front of an audience who's a pastor and start to talk about original goodness, that person is prescribing, they're going against this whole teaching on total depravity of man. They're saying that, hey, look, rather than point to our fallenness, let's talk about how good we are. And so that's what the snowflakes are doing. They snicker at the thought of being innately, something being innately wrong. That there are certain actions, thoughts, and behaviors that are deemed to be sinful. And so they condemn anyone who would dare suggest that they are anything less than good people. Paul says, Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, in contrast, he says, there's no one righteous. No, not even one. G.K. Chesterton, a great theologian um, of a generation ago, said, the most provable fact of all of Christian theology is that people are bad. Left unto our own devices, society will plummet. We'll corrupt our relationships. We'll end up in destruction. Self we will self-destruct if we're left to our own devices. We don't bring society up. Rather, humanity left to himself, if God extracts himself out of our lives, I mean, society begins to degenerate. And we see this all through human history, uh, example after example. The millennials say, I don't think so not how I see humanity. I see people as essentially good. Again, no Christian memory. There's a real difference there in how millennials view the essential nature of man. And because millennials think that we are essentially born good, they've lost the ability to determine good from bad. Because they see it all, the way we're born. The way, I mean, what do you mean that an instinct that I have is wrong? they can't determine good from bad who's to say in other words what ends up happening is i become my own author of morality i begin to determine what's right from what's wrong and i become the arbiter of my own moral truth according to a christian though who sees us human beings as essentially fallen rather than look within ourselves to find morality we look at a source outside of ourselves right that's constant and fixed, and has standards. I mean, Nazi Germany, it's human nature, right, to want to self-justify. Uh, and so Christians say, hey, you know what, rather than me sit here and self-justify my actions, I just need to go look at what God says is right, and what God says is wrong. We look to a true source outside of ourselves. Millennials don't have that 
grocery store. They're looking at what the society at large thinks, and they're looking within themselves. What these millennial need, need friends are not trigger warnings or safe spaces or microaggression uh, <coughs> warnings, which are nothing more than cotton balls in their ears. What they need is to be told that they are not saints, but rather that they are sinners. That they are fundamentally and categorically broken human beings and that they are irredeemable without the Lord Jesus in their life. They don't need safe spaces. They need a savior. They need to open the debate and get back to the classical model where ideas aren't safe, right? Where ideas aren't safe. And we consider the value and the merit, and we, we, we consider the ideas and we run them through a rigor and then emerge unified in that pursuit of truth on the other side. Okay, I know that felt like college class again, but in any case, that's just, uh, I mean, anyway, I won't go into all the stuff I've been reading lately, but uh, <clears throat> I hope your neurons are firing today, right? Either they're firing or you went to sleep because it felt like a really uh, thick book, right? So anyhow, but, like, wake up because we're getting ready to get to that really most important question. What difference does all this make to my life? And I will say to you, though, that um, some of the background and some of the history of where these philosophical systems emerged out of will be covered in your small groups. And so I encourage you to go to one of the small groups that either meets this evening or that meets uh, next Sunday morning on this subject matter in our Sunday school classes. And you can discuss and see, again, where some of, the, the, where some of these ideas have originated from. Just didn't have time to get into all that in a sermon here this morning. So let's get to our most important question. What difference does all this make to my life? Say, Gordon, it sounds to me like this is a problem for the administration of the schools. Uh, doesn't sound like something that I really even have a say-so in. I mean, what difference does any of this make then to me? Well, that's a really great question, and let's talk about it. I want to go back to the text that we read at the start, Leviticus chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. Again, the people of Israel are getting ready to go into the land of Canaan. They're, they've just left behind Egypt. They're out wandering around in the desert. And they're getting ready to go take this land, which will now become national Israel. And so God has some words of instruction for them on their way into this land. Okay, look at verse 1. God says to them, uh, the Lord God said to Moses, speak to the Israelites, verse 2, and say to them, I am the Lord your God. In other words, Baal's not your God. Pharaoh's not your God. Not some carved idol in Canaan where you're going. Me, God says, I am your God. And so that means that you follow what God tells you to do. Okay? Uh, verse 3, because I'm your God, you must not do as they do back in Egypt where you came from. So the land that you left behind in Egypt, um, God says, don't, do, don't duplicate the behaviors that you saw happening there. In addition to that, God says, uh, don't, you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan. That is where you are going into the land that I'm bringing you into. Do not follow, God says, their practices. God was very concerned about the Israelites duplicating the practices and the behaviors and absorbing the value systems of the people in the land where they had just been living and in the land where they were about ready to go. He was concerned that they would become so congenial with their neighbors that their neighbors' value systems would begin blending into their own. There would be this syncretism of value systems. And rather than living out a whole, holy Christian life, God would say, you know what, you're living some of that, but then you're also living some of the secular world as well. 
the way that the neighbors were living. In other words, God knows, God knows, God knows that we are social creatures. That's why Jesus compared us to sheep. Uh, what do sheep do besides wander off sometimes? They stay together. They're herding animals. And where the other sheep are going, I'm going too, right? That's what sheep do. Um, and so God was very concerned about this. You know, friends, you can tell your folks, your, your children all day long not to follow the crowd. But sooner or later, they're going to find themselves in an environment where seven out of ten follow the crowd. And they go with it. You say, well, Gordon, uh, I got a little bit of a problem there is that I'm planning on or already have sent my children through public university systems. So, I mean, finances are a big part of the issue. I mean, got the Hope Scholarship out there, all those sorts of things. Unless I want to write some big old check, send my student out, out of state or something like that to some Christian university, which not all are teaching a classical model or espousing Christian worldview. So don't think that that's the case there either. Um, what do I do? I mean, because that's what's available to me. What do I do in that scenario? And here's what I would suggest for you as a parent. Three different things I would tell you to do. Uh, if you've got kids that are heading off to the university system in the coming years or are there now, here's what I would encourage you to do. Because we are all like sheep, because we are all social creatures and we tend to follow the crowd, you as a parent need to insist and follow up on and make sure that your son and your daughter are part of a crowd that's worth following. They need to be part of a crowd that's worth following. If one of my daughters was to say, hey, Dad, I want to go to Georgia. I want to go to one of the other schools here in the state uh, that's a public university. More important to me, when we step on campus in that first couple of days, first couple hours, more important to me than finding their dorm room, than finding the library, than finding the bookstore, than walking them to the buildings where their classes are going to be, than figuring out all the cafeteria stuff, more important than any of those things is to make sure that they know where Christian Campus Fellowship meets, that they go to the house where Christian Campus Fellowship meets, that I take them to the Baptist Student Union, that I introduce them to people at the Wesley Foundation. There are a dozen Christian Campus Ministries on the campus at the University of Georgia alone where they can get plugged into a community where they can be part of a crowd that is worth following. I'm sure, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that the seven out of the ten probably were not regulars, probably were not connected in to a crowd that was worth following. Um, I'm going to introduce them not to the secretary at the CCF house. I'm going to go find uh, Donnie Holiday. I'm going to go find the director of the ministry. I'm going to give him or maybe the intern that's assigned to New students that are coming in, I'm going to make sure they've got my child's phone number. I'm going to make sure they've got my child's email. And my child's going to be standing right there next to me when all this is happening, right? Hey, this is the person that you need to know. And then after I leave campus, I'm going to be on the phone with my child every day during the, and every week checking in saying, hey, did you go to campus ministry this week? Well, you know, I was contacted. No, that's not what I want to hear. Hey, I'm coming. I'm going to be there on campus next, tomorrow, and we're going to go together. But it is because, because. I know, they're over here stressing themselves right now, right? <laughs> because the stakes are so high. That is not a set of dice. 
that I want to gently roll out there. A second thing that I would advise that you do is to make sure that your children know good doctrine. Make sure that your children know good doctrine. By being a part of a church like this, you're, you're, you're nailing that down. Okay? Uh, one, of my, one of my biggest complaints when I was a youth pastor was that I only got, like, at best, and in fact, I remember Jonathan saying this to me himself, his observation, of, uh, he's like, you know, at best, we get maybe two hours, three hours a week maybe with students, uh, our opportunity to be able to spend time with them, um, rather than, you know, we're just, we feel like we're such a little part of their life, but friends, we need to make sure, we're going to make good, I'm going to make good, week in and week out, to teach good doctrine here, Jonathan's doing the same. We're of a like mind there. We both love the scriptures. We believe in the inerrancy of scripture. We believe in the infallibility of scripture. We understand apologetics, and we're training your kids up to know that stuff. But you need to make sure that you make good on your part to make sure that they're here, that they're plugging in there. They're getting that stuff, that that stuff's soaking in. It's becoming a part of who they are. So that when they go into a classroom where skepticism is shared, where the Bible is, people start poking holes into it, when people start poking holes into their worldview and into their faith, that they can say, I may not know the answer to that right off, but I got a guy's phone number, right? My phone number, come on now, who, who I can call, or I got Jonathan's phone number, I can call, and I can find out the answer to that because I know better. I've got wisdom on my side. I know better than to just take what I'm being, uh, being spoon-fed here to me today. The last thing that I would share with you, so the first thing is, to make sure that your child is part of a crowd worth following. The second thing is to make sure that they, have, that they know good doctrine. And the third thing I would say is to pray. Is to pray. I was sitting at a uh, swim meet last night. I was talking with a, a family who have raised godly children, who have gone on to public university system, who have now graduated out of that and are raising godly families of their own. And I asked the mom, I said, what do you, what do, you do? She said, I spend a lot of time on my knees. You know the best part? I'm going to cry. Sorry. Be all right with it. It happens sometimes. Because <laughs> the stakes are high. You know the best part of my day is? When I lay down in bed at night and Claire comes to bed and she pulls out a book and she prays. She has been doing this for years for our girls praying for them, day in and day out, praying for them. Friends, the stakes are so, so high. We've spent 18 years, right, investing in them, teaching them a Christian worldview, planting in them these Judeo-Christian values, planting in them a love for God's word, planting in them God's truth, the gospel. You don't want to see that washed away in the first 18 minutes of some orientation by somebody who doesn't want to hear what we have to say, what we think. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for speaking to us today. We thank you for the charge that you've given us as parents, as people who have sat in a pew and said, as young moms and dads bring their little babies forward, who have promised ourselves to share our faith in Christ with that little one. The investments are being made all around us. 
God, we pray that you would take these investments, that you would take our best, and that you would allow it to preserve the faith of our children so that when they're old, Proverbs 22, 6, they will not depart from it. That's what we want to do. God, we ask that you would continue to help us as moms and dads, as aunts and uncles, grandparents, to continue to be wise, to raise up our children with humble hearts. And Lord, we just lay them before you. We ask that you would penetrate their hearts and their minds, continue to draw them unto yourself. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this church. We ask now as we celebrate your broken body and your shed blood that you would give us some more wisdom and some more direction in these quiet moments, we pray. In Christ's holy name, amen.